Welcome to FCC Grayson Online. My name is Ben James. I'm the lead pastor here at First Church in Grayson. We're glad that you're with us here today watching this video. We are continuing in our Exodus study as we are taking the year of 2022, and we're going to be spending around 30 weeks in the book of Exodus. Now, if we're setting the scene as we left off last week with Pastor Thomas preaching on Exodus chapter 3, uh, he really highlighted this God speaking to Moses and the, the heavy emphasis on that uh, God revealing his nature of I am who I am. And he went into a really fantastic teaching on just the weight and the gravity of that moment. But one of the areas that we did not get to last week was basically the verses 16 through 22. And in those verses, just to give you a little bit of a Reader's Digest version, God tells Moses, God continues to speak, and he tells Moses everything that's going to happen. And I mean, he begins to talk about how he's going to send him. Uh, they're going to change their mind. Pharaoh is going to waffle back and forth. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. But in the end, the, the nation of Israel will be walking out of the nation of Egypt. And they're not only going to be walking out with their freedom, they're also going to be walking out with a good deal of Egyptian goods as well, that they're going to come out with, uh, with some possessions, with some wealth, and with some monetary things. So that's kind of setting us up as we're going to be covering the totality of chapter four today. And like we did last week, it's really difficult to, to cover a whole chapter in one message. But we're going to be looking at some main themes during chapter four. And, and we're basically going to be focusing heavily today on the three signs that God gives to Moses. Because as soon as we start this passage, you're going to see Moses ask a question, and then you're going to kind of see Moses ask a same question in verse 10 that's going to be just a little bit differently worded, but it's still the same question, and God takes different methods and different ways that he addresses what's going on. But today, we're going to title this message, What's in Your Hand? And we're going to see that that's a question that God asked Moses, but I believe that in certain areas and in certain ways, that's the same question that we have to answer today. What's in your hand? But we'll get to that a little bit later. So let's read at least uh, the first portion of this passage. Anyhow, let's, let's go through verse 17 as we read together. Exodus chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored to the rest of his flesh. 
If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the sign. So as we pause reading right there, let's understand what God is doing in this passage. Again, Moses is coming off of just having God explain everything that's getting ready to happen at the end of chapter 3. He says, but Lord, you know, how are they going to know that you're sending me? Um, which is interesting because Moses moves from being told everything that's getting ready to happen, and it's almost like it didn't even register with him. And I see myself so much in Moses here, just from the fact of I'm so quick to disqualify myself, which if I'm looking at me and who I am and my capabilities, I understand that's, that's probably the first response I need to come to. But Moses is being told all of this by God. And he's having these doubts and these questions, and it's still at the forefront of his mind that he's not going to be able to accomplish what God is calling him to do. So God responds to him, and he asks him, he's like, what is that in your hand? What's in your hand? Moses looks, and he said, well, that's a staff. You know, it's a shepherding rod. So here's where I want to pause just for the first moment, and I want to talk to us about the significance of private obedience, because this is really the theme that we're going to be dealing with through the entirety of this chapter is obedience um, in and through faith in God. That's, that's really what the whole chapter can be summed up into, is being obedient to God. But we see different areas of obedience. And this first one is a moment of private obedience. And this is where the three signs come in. Now, if you look at different commentaries, if you look at different writings and, and people, uh, men and women of God throughout the years who have studied this passage, you'll see uh, several different types of takes on the significance of these three signs, of what each one of them meant. And while I can't say that I would tell you or caution you uh, the errancy of any of them wholeheartedly, I don't know that I would also encourage you to say that one's the one that is absolutely 100% correct. So here's what I want to do with these. Whether it's, you know, some people say that it's a sign for, one of them was a sign for Moses, one of them was a sign for the Israelites, one of them was a sign for the Egyptians. Another one will say that one of them was a spiritual sign, one of them was a physical sign, one of them was an elemental sign. 
Uh, again, I don't know if any of those are completely wrong, but at the same time, we're not given really any indication here that I can look at one of those three and go, bingo, in my mind, anyhow. But I want us to look at how God was speaking to Moses privately and that this was going to require an element of obedience, even in private, even when nobody else was watching because they were on the backside of a desert. Uh, Moses was tending his father-in-law's flocks and he was keeping them. So no one was around, not even close at this point. So God's first thing is what is in your hand. God took the staff of Moses, which would have been his livelihood. This is one of the things, although it's not a weapon, it's critically important in the life of a shepherd for his staff for several different reasons that I'm not going to get into. But this is one of the daily must-have type things. One of the things that really wouldn't even register that you have it, that you're using it, that you're utilizing it until maybe it's gone. One of the more mundane, normal aspects of our lives is what God is highlighting and using here to show Moses this first sign that he's going to be with him. So he tells Moses, throw the staff down on the ground. So Moses obeys, and he does that. And the moment that the staff hits the ground, it turns into a snake. In the scripture, there's a statement here. It says, and Moses ran from it, or Moses fled, depending upon your translation. The, the, the key thing to understand here is that once he saw the snake, Moses took off. And I don't blame him. That's my first response, and you can talk about snakes, killing spiders, mice, whatever you want to talk about. Snakes are the devil, okay? Read in Genesis. They're the devil. But I want us to think about the new, a layer of nuance here in Moses' fleeing. Moses had spent almost 40 years in a wilderness. He had spent almost 40 years taking care and protecting his father-in-law's flocks. In the wilderness, in the desert area that he was in, snakes were not uncommon. So Moses seeing a snake would not have been something that would have spooked him initially. So I want us to understand what type of snake that we're talking about here. This was an incredibly dangerous snake. One that was so dangerous, in fact, that a person who was very familiar and frequently exposed to this type of creature, that person looked at that and went, danger, get out. So this is not just a little green garter snake here or a black snake that we would commonly see around here and go, okay, it's not that big of a deal. This was a dangerous snake. So Moses flees, he runs, and God's like, come back here, come back here. Now I want you to pick it up. Only I want you picking it up by its tail. Now, me, as a person who's not a fan of snakes, I have zero desire to ever pick one up. I don't even want to touch one. Matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever touched a snake physically, just being honest. But I know that if I'm ever in that place, no matter what type of snake, no matter what size of snake, if I'm ever going to have to put my hands on a snake to pick it up, you don't grab it by its tail. You grab it behind its head, right? Because you grab it by the tail, then it's going to be able to coil back, do that 
freaky little snake thing that it does and come back and bite you and boom, you're dead. That's just how it happens. Follow my National Geographic channel. But God's giving specific instruction here. Pick up the snake by its tail. Moses does, picks it up, turns back into a staff. So what's the significance of this particular sign and what he's asking Moses to do? Well, I'm going to put an image on your screen. And this is what an Egyptian pharaoh's crown would have looked like. This was the headdress. Okay, So you will see in this picture that there is a cobra with its hood unfurled in this position of getting ready to strike. Pharaoh wouldn't have always worn this headdress. It would have been for specific moments. And when he put this on, this was the representation of his sovereignty that he basically proclaimed and became, in the eyes of the Egyptians, a god. And the snake, the cobra with its hood open, it would point out, especially in moments of battle and conflict, it would point out towards their enemies in the position to strike. And this was significant because it was proclaiming the God status of Pharaoh. It was proclaiming his sovereignty, master, ruler of everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, above everything else. So the snake, the cobra, this dangerous snake, would have been, in the minds of the Egyptian, this is the sign of Pharaoh's power, and there's none above him. And not only do we see God using a shepherd to throw it up, pick it, you know, throw it up, throw it down, pick it up, but he's also doing it in a way that is totally goes against rational thought and safe steps in doing so. So God was showing Moses here, and he was going to be showing the Egyptians later that even your most powerful person, the most significant person that you think is that God status, that is sovereign, that is ruler over everything, is absolutely nothing. He has no power. He is powerless compared to me, and I'm going to show you this by doing this. So we see this first. And now listen, this is a step of obedience here. I don't care if you're seeing a burning bush. I don't care if you've got people around you. I don't care if you're by yourself. If you, if God is asking you to pick up a snake by its tail, it doesn't matter what type of company or lack thereof that you have around you. Doing that in the way that God has asked Moses to do it is a definite step of personal obedience. So he does that. Then he moves on. And he said, if that doesn't work, I'm going to show you something else. Now, go ahead, put your hand in your cloak. Okay, this is a little weird, but I guess I just picked a poisonous snake up by its tail. So, I mean, you know, what, what else can happen here? Puts his hand in his cloak, pulls it out, and it's completely white from leprosy. Now, this doesn't seem like such a big deal to us today because there are very few pockets of where leprosy is still a thing in our world today. And even in the areas that it is a thing, if medical treatment can arrive there, it's really simple to take care of now. It's not life-threatening. It's not a big deal now because there's been developments in treatment that this can be cured. But understand something. 
back in Moses' time, this was a death sentence, okay? He would have absolutely, well, I would have absolutely lost my mind at this point seeing this because this, this would have been beyond stage four, okay? This would have been beyond any hope. This would have been beyond any treatment whatsoever because there was zero that they could do about leprosy during this time. God tells him, put your hand back in your cloak. He does that, pulls it back out, and he's completely healed. What God was showing Moses in this moment of private obedience was that, hey, even in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, in the history of the world up until this time, the most powerful currently at this point, they have used their resources, they put their greatest minds, they've thrown gold at it, they've thrown experiments at it, they've done everything they can do within their power to cure this disease and to find a remedy for it, and they still have gotten nowhere. I'm going to show you just how not of a big deal it is to me. Put your hand in there. Oh, it's leprosy. Just go ahead and put it back in there. Oh, okay. It's not. Boom. It is. Boom. It's not. It is. It's not. God showing that I'm so far beyond the power the ability, the capability of anything that Egypt is doing, and you're going to show them that. Because the, one of the most dreaded things in their life within a movement, within a, within a thought from God, it's gone. It's healed completely. And then he says, hey, listen, so if that doesn't work, what you're going to do is I want you to take a cup of water from the Nile, and then I want you to pour it out. And when it hits the ground... It's going to turn to blood. So why was this important? We've already said a couple times in this study that the Nile, without the Nile, there is no Egypt. And the more you research it, the more you realize that how accurate that is, that there would be absolutely nothing, nothing in that area without the Nile. One of the things that the Nile did was each year during flood stage, the waters during the floods would bring 30 feet of black soil, 30 feet of black nutrient-rich soil into the desert. And this was a place that you could not grow anything. But when the Nile flooded, it brought all of this black nutrient-rich soil into the Nile Delta and boom, source of life. So if you remove that water, if you um, spoil that water in any way, then you take the very life out of Egypt. And what they had built would be no more. So he's like, you'll take the water. It'll still be, and I understand, I mean, think about this. I mean, and this may just be my mind and where it goes and it's dangerous. I get it. But let's think about this for a minute that you pick up a cup, Nile water, okay? It's not like it's turning to blood in the cup, you know, where you got a great deal of confidence like, this is going to work. God says, no, it's going to be water when you pick it up. It's going to be water when you pour it out. It's going to be water when it's falling, and it's not going to turn to blood until it hits the ground. Can you think about that if that doesn't work? How much faith is required to be obedient to that, especially in the presence of people who could take your life? So he's like, hey, what happens if it doesn't work? It's like, oh yeah, I've got something to show you. Still water. But these three steps 
of personal obedience are huge in setting up this showdown, if you will, this confrontation with Pharaoh. But verse 10 is a real pivotal point because God said, listen, if the first one doesn't work with the staff and the snake thing, try the second one. You know, the leprosy trick there, you know, that that thing that I'm doing. Okay, so let's say the first one doesn't work. Do the leprosy thing. I'm going to show them how powerful I am against a disease they can't figure out. He says, okay, so if that doesn't work, remember, he's already told him that it's not going to. Spoiler alert, verses 16 through 22 in chapter 3. But if that doesn't work, then do the Nile, the the water thing. And verse 10 is a real telling thing here because God has already told him at the end of chapter 3 what's going to happen. And then he shows him these three miraculous signs of God's power and his awe and his wonder. But verse 10 in chapter 4 is really telling about where Moses' mind is and where ours is most of the time too. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, Moses says here, O my Lord. Significant, if we go back to last week, um, I am who I am. You know, Thomas talked to us about Yahweh and how, you know, the different uh, nuances to that and how it was also translated later on down the line of, um, you know, Jehovah, Adonai, that type of thing. It, it's important for us to understand here that this Lord, oh my Lord, that Moses uses here, that is not Yahweh. That is Adonai, which means sovereign one or master or ruler of everything. That's what Moses is saying here. He's calling God by his name. He says, oh, my sovereign one. Oh, my one who controls everything. Oh, my master. I can't do this because of this. You see, Moses in this moment, even after being told what was going to happen and even after um, seeing these signs, goes back to his inadequacies and why he can't do what God's asking him to do. And that's kind of a default mechanism, I think, within us, because I know I'm guilty of it heavily and frequently in my life. And God responds with, who made your mouth? Okay, you just you got my name right. You just called me sovereign. You just recognize that I'm in control of all things. Who, who do you think controls the mouth? Who do you think gives you the words? Who do you think, as Thomas we were talking about last week, who do you think gives you the very breath? Who am I? Who are you? What's going on here? Can I not give you the words? If I'm all-powerful, if I'm sovereign, if I'm in control of everything, can I control what's coming out of your mouth? And we see this. God. It says that God's anger was kindled at Moses. You see, He was in private moments of obedience here, but when it became something that God was expecting him to further, then Moses' faith started to affect his obedience. And we're going to see this become a big thing because God's now asking him to move from a private obedience into more of a corporate obedience setting. One of the areas 
that I really want us to draw attention to. It's really weird. I'm going to grant you this. It's a really weird portion of Scripture. It's a little cringy, and you're going to see what I'm talking about here in a minute. But it's something, another area of obedience in this corporate thing that Moses is failing at. If you'll look with me, chapter 4, starting with verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Zen then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, there's a lot of questions here. That number one, we really don't have the time to answer. Number two, I really don't have concrete answers to provide you. But Moses had finally arrived at the place that, hey, I'm going. And there's Moses went back. He got a permission from his father-in-law to leave Midian, to go back to Egypt, to help rescue God's people. At that time, Moses led out, and what we see in verse 24 here is on the way that the Lord was going to kill him. Now, we don't know exactly who the him is. Most people think it's Moses. It could have been his firstborn son because what we find out is that Moses had not fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant that God established in Genesis chapter 17. We've talked about the promise a little bit that God made to Abraham that his descendants would be as multiple as the stars in the sky and that there would be a land that they would possess and that they would be his people. But the covenant was signified by a blood covenant of circumcision of all the male children. And what we find out here is that for whatever reason, Moses was not raising his, his son in this Abrahamic covenant, that he was not following the Genesis 17 law of circumcision that, that established and signified the covenant. And I don't know if he was raising him as a Midian. I don't know if he was raising him as an Egyptian. But we can see here that there was not a covenant that was established between God. And before God was going to use Moses to deliver his people, he was holding him accountable for being obedient, not only in private, not only personally in that moment, but also corporately from a whole nation of Israel. So we see here that Zephora comes in, takes care of the situation. Not going to get any, into any great detail, but you see that God, this covenant is reestablished. And then that moves us into the more personal um, areas of covenant and this per, into the more personal and nationwide area of obedience when we begin to see Moses arriving and telling all of the elders of the people of Israel what's going to happen, what God had said, what God had done, the message that he had delivered, and it said that they all believed him. So I'm going to wrap this up with kind of challenging us with a little bit of an application point today. I want to ask you what's in your hand. Because whatever God is asking you to do, He's already provided you with what you need to do it. But it never, it will never come about outside of our obedience to him in faith. It will never come about outside of us in covenant with God. Now, one of the realities about the covenant of God 
is that inside the covenant, there is grace, there's mercy, there's salvation in the covenant. Outside of the covenant, there is death and there's damnation. And I know that's heavy, but Scripture just propels me to communicate that to you. And another thing, and, and this is going to be a little heavy too, so I'm giving you a little forewarning as we're moving into the application thing. Where is your obedience level? When God's asking you a question similar to what's in your hand, where is your obedience? Do you have a desire to be obedient to God? Do you want to do His will in your life? Do you want to be the person that He's called you to be? Are you walking in covenant with Him? I'm not talking about knocking it out of the park every time. I'm not talking about getting everything right, saying the right things, doing the right things, acting the right way all the time. I'm challenging you this morning to reflect on how how is your desire in your obedience with God. Are you trying to walk in obedience? Are you wanting to walk in obedience? And listen, I'm, I'm going to address something heads up. If you're doing nothing else for God, but the mandatory thing of watching this online service each Sunday and not have zero desire to do anything else through the week, and you're proclaiming yourself to be a follower, to be a Christian, you may have been baptized at eight years old. You may have done all the Sunday school stuff. You may have done the youth group thing. You may have done all those things. But if you don't have a desire to go beyond the minimal effort you feel is required, my friends, you may be in danger. And I know that that's heavy. I know that some of you may think, well, I'm never tuning into this again. I want something that's going to make me feel better about it. That's, that's okay. But Scripture absolutely propels me to challenge myself and to challenge you this, this, this message and this, this study, this whole theme of obedience and faith. Where is your desire? How's your walking out of this thing? Because while salvation is 100% God's and God's alone, our walking this thing out does require obedience from us, just as Moses, with his obedience based in his faith in God. It was required for him to do what God wanted him to do. And it's still the same for us today. Are you desiring to be obedient to do what God has called you to do, even if it leads you into laying down some of the most comfortable things in your life, even if it asks you to get out of your comfort zone, even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it would lead into the possibility of suffering, persecution, ridicule, are you desiring to be obedient to God? I ask you again in my closing statement today, what is in your hand?